I'm Andy Irwin, and this is The Storytellers. Coming up on this edition of The Storytellers, uh, today we've got a treat for you. Uh, this guy is a New York Times bestselling author and a master storyteller. And the thing I love about this guy is he uh, tells true stories. That's really what he does. He has this kind of journalist heart uh, of trying to understand people's real life experience. And he comes at it from this place of, uh, uh, of kind of a benevolent skeptic of trying to understand the person he's creating. And he's told legendary stories that we've loved along the way, one of which we're actively developing as a movie. So we're going to get a chance to talk a little bit behind the scenes about uh, one of his one of his properties. So today we have a on, on the show is a treat. We get to have one of uh, my heroes, an author that I absolutely adore, Eric Blim, New York Times bestseller. Welcome to the Storytellers. Andy, thanks for having me. I'm just so honored to be part of this uh, great, great idea to get the Storytellers together and and talk our craft yeah you know the thing i love is i love this like just the common connection with storytellers whether it's you know musicians or actors or authors uh or film directors in my case there's just a common language of just loving a good story uh for you what was the first story like that grabbed you like out of all that stuff that you read the material and being able to be transported around the world what was the first one that just sucked you into the world do you remember one that stands out oh yeah uh i mean it was younger honestly but uh swiss family robinson oh my uh, gosh we read that i love together. that and it was this idea of just you know you know it starts out in this you know this tempest this storm and the family is um dreading for their lives and they find themselves alone the whole crew has abandoned uh -huh. them and and they have to survive and then they end up on this island and as a kid i grew up on on 34 acres of oak trees and shrub brush out in Valley Center in East uh, San Diego County, East North County. And I mean, I was all about building forts and tree forts and chasing blue belly lizards and, you know, running around with a hatchet on my side and a BB gun. You know, it was just adventure. And I just lived that. And to this day, I mean, I have a collection. When I travel around the world, I would always go to find bookstores and try and find Swiss Family Robinson in different languages. Um, just it, that was, that was no doubt the very first book before I really thought about being a writer, but the oh. first book that I will always remember as the one that took me away. That, you know, that, that story has influenced a lot of other storytellers. Like George Lucas talks about before he wrote Star Wars, like Swiss Family Robinson was the story that captivated him. Really? Had no idea. You look at like the scene in the, uh, in A New Hope, the first Star Wars where they're wrestling with that snake in the or the the monster in the cr trash compactor, that mm -hmm. scene comes directly out of the Swiss Family Robinson movie from Disney. You know, it's it's you know wrestling with the anaconda or whatever in the swamp. Yes. So oh, you know, my all, God. where does it go from being just something that is for you that you like good stories to saying no, I want to be a writer. I was talking to my daughter about this just the other day. She's an amazing writer, loves to read, really lucky in that. Uh -huh. uh, for, to have a kid that nowadays does that and she was like asked kind of the same question and I wanted to be like I said a, a professional snowboarder but at some point I real I realized that ah, maybe not it's not going to happen but I did take off one of the things I wanted to do was ride every day and so I moved to Breckenridge Colorado which was like the hotbed of snowboarding in the early and mid or the mid 80s got sponsored competed for a year 
uh, ended up blowing my knee out. And that's when I remembered a guy I met on a chairlift when I was in Breckenridge working for a snowboard shop, Main Street Sports in Breckenridge, Colorado. And there was a guy on the chairlift started asking me all these questions. And I uh, was like halfway up the lift. I was like, what are you writing a book? He said, well, no, actually, I'm uh, a travel writer. And I thought, what a scam. You know, are you kidding me? You get to, you know, everything's free and you get to write about where you're traveling. And that was the idea of a travel writer or whatever. But then for a snowboarding magazine, it would have been perfect. And um, that was really how I, the, the light bulb went off when I injured myself. So I had knee surgery, was on crutches, and I said, I'm going to knuckle down and go back to school, you know, listening to other people, hearing what they do. And then when something clicks and you love it and you something you want to do, you jump on it. And that was what I did and was fortunate enough to then get a job at the world's largest snowboarding magazine and worked my way up to the top slot as the editor where I could literally assign myself wherever, whatever I wanted to do, the oh, dream man. job, you know, Hey, you want to go heliboarding here in BC? You want to, that was the stuff that we could dream up and go and do. That's cool. What for, for you, like what became your style, especially because you as a writer just naturally kind of delved into these authentic kind of true stories, what became your style and your method of being able to tell a story later on, as I got into book writing, I would say I was really, I really was inspired by Alfred Lansing's endurance. Yeah. Um, and I loved how he was able to use, you know, gather these journals from the different people who were on this. And then he could focus in on certain events seen from the perspective of different people. And I thought that was so important. And I always thought, uh, again, the truth is stranger than fiction as yeah. I've never written, written fiction. I, every time I finish a book and it's like having a, you know, giving birth to that book, I will say, I'm going to write fiction next. I'm going to write fiction. <laughs> and then, um, then I slowly forget what that birth was like is like <laughs> my wife has said before we had <laughs> no. the next kid and the next kid, uh, we would, it's kind of like you realize that, uh, a new story would come up. I'd be introduced to a new idea and be uh, pulled into it. I love the research. The writing is painful. Um, and, but the research for me is just so fun and I'm like, I feel like a detective um, and trying to just, again, that seeing all sides of the story, it's very apparent to me when a writer has an agenda and their own spin into an event. And I've yeah. always tried to, I've always tried to be very honest in the writing as far as giving both sides to a story an event, whatever it might be. And that really came from, I think, Alfred Lansing and Endurance and um, and just using all those different elements that you can as a researcher yeah. to see it from all different angles and uh, opinions. Yeah. Yeah. Th and that's something I've always appreciated about you. There's an integrity to how you tell the person's real life story is there's a kind of a seek to understand what made this person tick. And um, so for you to, to make that jump from magazines and doing what you love with snowboarding to saying, I'm going to be an author. I'm going to write books. What was the story that tempted you into that? And, uh, and what was your approach to being able to begin that research process of trying to understand how to tell a story in long form? Uh, I, nine 11 happened and I thought, you know, with this great respect for the military, I never served myself at, at the point in time when I could have considered serving, I mean, the closest I ever got to serving the military or being in the military was being a surfer in San Diego. And I would keep my hair 
cropped short so I could drive past the guards at Camp Pendleton because <laughs> there's a great wave on Camp Pendleton, the Del Mar Jetties. And that, you know, I'd drive by with you know three boards stacked up <laughs> on my Aloha surf racks and my Dodge Challenger with all That's my buddies, funny. maybe uh, some smoke walking out the back of the window <laughs> and and drive by thinking, oh, if I have my hair cropped short, maybe they'll think I'm a Marine. And so anyways, later on after 9-11, I thought, what's my part in all this? Yeah. How can I, what's my part? What can I do? And I thought, you know what? I can tell the stories. And huh. around that time was not too long before that, you know, was uh, Saving Private Ryan came out and then yep. Band of Brothers and all this news of the World War II veterans dying off and yeah. their stories dying with them. And I thought, hey, history is happening right now. This could be our greatest. This is our greatest generation. Yep. Guys going into Afghanistan and and Iraq. And I just thought, you know, this could be my way of telling their story while it's still fresh in their mind if they're willing to talk. And that's what led me to, again, telling that my, you know, first military style story. And I'm, I think I, I kind of rambled away from no. the original question. But the original question you had was, uh, what gave me that idea of what to, to actually write a book. And I was fortunate enough to be approached by uh, like an assistant uh, literary agent named Christy Fletcher um, from New York. She wrote me or called me, I think when I was at the magazine and then said, I read one of your features and have you ever considered writing a book? Huh. And I thought, well, I would love to, it's my ultimate dream. I mean, I, you start with a newspaper, you start write an article, you get to magazines and, you know, next was going to be what? I don't know. Um, but a book was the obvious progression. And so yeah. we started putting together ideas. And uh, she, Christy Fletcher ended up being, she's one of the biggest, you know, agents in, in the business at this point. And I've been with her for 23 years. Um, and so that's really how it, how it came about. She helped uh, really craft and organize a um, proposal for my very first book. And um, I've been kind of learning along the way ever since. Some of the stories you've been able to tell uh, with military stories have been deeply impactful. Um, none, none more than, uh, than fearless. When I, I, I uh, was introduced to that, like I said, through Gary Sinise. And so Sinise has been a mentor uh, to uh, my brother and I for for years, and uh, is just a, a master storyteller himself. Uh, could very easily do my job. I'd be happy to get coffee for him at any point that he wants to hire me. But uh, uh, just respect what he has to say a lot. But uh, after we did a, the the movie, I can only imagine he uh, he sends me uh, a copy of this book, and he says this book is one of my favorite books. And if I was a younger man, I would direct this. He's like, but this has your DNA all over it. You have to tell this story. And at the time, it was uh, in development at another studio. And we had tried to work out, you know, to be able to do it. But we chased you guys for about, you know, four or five years uh, to try to kind of get it set up. But in that process, when I read it for the first time, I remember, like, I'm a pretty tough nut to crack, like, story-wise. Like, it's you know, you know, when you do it for a living, you see things a lot more analytically. And a lot of times it's hard to kind of get past that to something emotional. And uh, I remember reading it and just I couldn't put it down. And I was finishing the last three or four chapters on a flight from uh, from the East Coast to L.A. And I was 
I remember I was on final approach into LAX and I had just gotten to the part uh, of the book at the end where, where Adam sacrifices his life. And, uh, and I was ugly crying. I'm talking like, like snot face. Like people thought I was having a heart attack. It was, it was, it was embarrassing, but I was just like, I can't even explain it. It's the, and so I got, I got, when we landed, I remember calling my brother, John, and I just said, John, like, um, if I don't get a chance to direct this film before I die, like a part of my soul will die. Like I have to be a part of this. And so like, it's a story that's deeply meaningful. Like for you, like where, where does that story, where did it find you? And where did you decide, like, this is a book that I'm willing to dedicate, like, how long is it to take to write a really good book uh, of that caliber and do all the research? You're like, what, committing a couple years of your life? What, it, what, what, what does it take to, to do it? You know what? It's crazy. My first book that ended up when the Army Ranger book didn't work out, my next book was the last season, uh, the, Army, the story of the backcountry ranger who went missing in the Sequoia Kings Canyon. Um, believe it or not, that was not a full-time thing, but it took about seven years yeah. between almost eight years. Wow. Uh, the next one, the only thing worth dying for was about three and a half years. Yeah. Uh, legend was, uh, a good solid three years, but between that fearless, I have to say it's the most, uh, the most, the biggest reach, the most impactful, the be- biggest seller. Uh, it got as high as number seven on the New York Times bestseller list, which was unbelievable in the nonfiction category for me. It was just like all, you know, it's like harps and rainbows going on with the, you know, just yeah. the, the, what was happening with it. But it took me from start to finish about nine months to research and write Fearless. No um, way. Be, and it was being printed in less than a year. They would have loved to have it in six huh. months because the the story of how it came to me is just bizarre but i could never ever have written this or even known about the story if it wasn't for a, a friend a, a dear friend named rick stewart and rick stewart was uh producing what were called patriot profiles for the nra they were doing a thing where it was you know they were finding veterans of all and um telling their stories and he wrote this or he produced this documentary about adam and you've probably seen clips of it and, and it's, yeah. it's an amazing thing. And he just, during the course of that, he had done a mini documentary along with some of the guys that I wrote about in the only thing worth dying for, which is the story of ODA 574. They were the first special forces team that went into Southern Afghanistan. We've all, so many people have heard about the horse soldiers that went into the North and linked up with the standing armies of the Northern Alliance. Well, these guys went to the South and they, basically joined up with a, an unknown statesman at the time named Hamid Karzai, who we know who that wow. is. And yeah. he ended up, and so I told that story and he ended up telling, um, interviewing one of the guys that had been, uh, a traumatic brain injury. Um, Gil Mag- um, Magalena is his nickname was mag. And he, uh, he said, Hey, you know, someone wrote a book about, about us. And he, and Rick asked him what, how was it? How did it turn out? And he said, well, he wasn't anybody, no military, he's an outside. And, and he just sang my praises and all the guys did. They said, this huh. guy is, he's a, a stand-up guy. He's not in the military, but he wants to tell the story to the greater public. So you, we, and if you read a story, Rick said, what, what hooked me to have you tell this story is, he said that if you read it, it'll sound like you were in the military, that you were there beside the men. 
Man. Everybody in the real world can understand it and follow along. So that's what I want to do, make it accessible to everybody. And um, he said, well, I know somebody else whose family and his buddies would like to tell a story. And his name is Adam Brown. Wow. And um, he said, let me show you this little mini documentary and let me know if you might be interested in it. It was perfect timing. At the time, I actually, it wasn't perfect timing. I had just sold another book. Um, and I, uh, had, it was, it was set into this other story. Anyway, I watched this documentary that Rick Stewart did, um, him trusting me, thinking I was potentially the right person. And I watched it about Adam Brown. And at the end of this, I was in tears. I was inspired. And I said, you know what, if I were to tell this story, I would call it fearless. And wow. that, right there on the spot within the first moment. That's chills. I love it. And he set up kind of a blind date with myself and the Brown family. And uh, I met them at a restaurant and I didn't know anything, you know, beyond not all the personal details of Adam. Was this in, his, in Hot Springs that you met or was that out in San Diego? No, it was actually in, they did the premiere in, I think, Philadelphia. Okay. And I, I got flew it. to Philadelphia from San Diego to meet the family. And they did the premiere of his little documentary there. And we went to this, uh, to this uh, uh, restaurant. And it was a place that required a coat. And so I had, I had my, I'm glad you told me to bring a coat. So I had a coat and I um, handed it to the people and they handed me my coat ticket number, you know, to put in my pocket. And it was the number 24. And at that moment, I kind of pick up on things. And I saw Kelly and, and Janice, uh, uh, who was Adam's mom and Kelly, yeah. his widow, um, yep. And they were kind of like talking, like, look, will you look at what number he got? And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever that is. And then we went through this whole meal and chatted and talked. And after it was all over, we went back to the hotel where we had all stayed. And that was so we, we went back. Uh, Rick drove us and we're checking in. And Kelly checks into her room. I'm in line behind her. And she turns around and she says, oh, my gosh, you know what room I got? She said, I got room 24 on the 24th floor. Well, come to find out 24 was like Adam's favorite number. It was his high school football Jersey number. It was his favorite wow. number. It was his code. It was his code with Kelly. Like if they ever opened the door and they wanted to make sure he, um, like at, late at night, he would yell out 24 and she'd say 24. That was like their thing. Like his, wow. um, she would say like his pin numbers were 24, 24 before they had met with me, they had said, because as you know, this is a story of redemption. And um, I was on my own spiritual journey. I mean, I was not religious at all. Last time right. I had, only time I had gone to church would have been for funerals and weddings up until that point. I, when my mom passed away, it was kind of like the last time I'd ever gone to church. Um, right. I was baptized because my mom asked me to be baptized, but that was it. Kind of, you know, on the verge of, you know, not atheist by any means, but, you know, more in the agnostic realm. And I, where I was just like, yeah, there's something out there, but I'm not, I'm not so sure. And, um, when they told me that was his number and that they had prayed before they met me and they said, we wanted to get an, an a message, something that would say, is this the guy to write Adam's story? And by uh -huh. the way, people don't realize that Adam Brown was killed in combat. And one of his final wishes was if he was ever killed in combat to tell his story. And um, the opening line in the book, it's no secret, is when Adam Brown woke up on March 17th, 2010, he didn't know he would die that night in the Hindu Kush mountains of Afghanistan. Yeah. But he was ready. And so with that in mind, um, 
there trusting me to tell this story because Adam had some dark times in his life and he had some skeletons in his closet and they wanted to tell the whole story, what he had gone through before he became this heroic Navy SEAL. So anyways, um, between all that, we're like, they're like, they don't even want to read any of my books. They're done. They're like, this is the guy to write the story based on yeah. the 24 coat check and the 24, 24. Well, the next day we go to this convention and we're walking around the aisles and it was, again, this story came out. Um, this documentary was launched at an NRA national convention and we go and we're walking around and who do we see, but Ted Nugent and Ted Nugent <laughs> is in this booth doing something. And, he had seen the documentary as well, like the night before Yeah. and Kelly introduced himself to her and she said, Oh my God, I can't believe Ted Nugent. What? This is crazy. I love your music and whatever. And I was like, Whoa, Ted Nugent rocker. I didn't know my history. I didn't know anything about him being a gun guy and whatever. Yeah. And we're chatting and one of his band members there. And he, and um, the one thing I had heard was that he only shot and killed what he would eat. And I said, and I said, is this true? Does he really only, if he goes hunting, he will eat everything that he shoots? And he said, it's absolutely true. In fact, he said, sometimes I wish he would shoot a salad. That's funny. Funny guy. We're chatting, and Kelly says to him, hey, uh, this is Eric Blem. He's an author, and we're going to have him write Adam's story. And he said, really? So that is going to be, just from watching this documentary, it's going to be an amazing book. When you get a copy, would you mind sending me one? And he gives me his business card. And I thank him, and I promise to do it. And um, on the way flying home the next day, I get to San Diego. Um, no, I'm sorry. I'm flying there. And I realize uh, I'm pulling through looking at my notes, and I look at his address, Ted Nugent's yeah. address. Yeah. His address, I won't say the street name, but the number of his address was 2424. Man, meant to be. And I was just like blown away. So that that was the lead up to all this. The other thing my I told my agent about it, and she said, well, at the time, there was a ton of Navy SEAL books. They're like, something, yeah. there's no way that them going to be interested. Something's got to happen in, that would make people interested, and the publishers want to go after uh, something about a Navy SEAL. Um, and well, I got off the plane while walking through the airport at San Diego and everybody's around the, around the um, TV screens and everything watching. And why we had been on the flight, that was when they had announced that SEAL Team 6 had gotten uh, Osama bin Laden Man. and that it was SEAL Team 6. And then Kelly called me and said, by the way, that was Adam's team. Those were his Man. Man. And so that all of that came together. I mean, and I was like, how could you not? get chills and say, and so I, at that moment I said, I will do anything I can to write this story. And I actually did a reversal and I canceled my other book deal in order to write fearless. And it came out in nine, I finished it in nine months, um, traveled all over interviewing his buddies and everything. And it came out so fast. And it's like, if there is a higher, uh, uh, order a higher higher being if, if there was somebody with their hand on my shoulder helping me write that story that was it I, mean, I, nine I, mean, I couldn't I, do it i couldn't do a book in nine months i have tried i just finished my new book and it was supposed to be done in two and a half years and with covid and everything it was a five-year process five yeah. years to write this book it's a nonfiction book takes a long time if you're going to do it right and i did fearless right and it just came out. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I knew. Yeah. 
there was an element of destiny to it that, you know, that that story was meant to be and just kind of willed itself into existence. I, I, I love that. I, I also love like the, the integrity you brought it to talk to uh, the family and to make sure, even though faith wasn't necessarily your, your journey, you didn't have the same journey as Adam. I've never read such authentic faith in the way that it's represented that, like you said, your, your job as a writer is not to judge, it's to really understand. And, um, and you did that with them. You really uh, tried to understand what, and, and, and I think what makes an interesting character in my world is contradictions. And to have this, this guy that's a warrior, also battles really dark addiction, and has a very authentic kind of innocent faith. Mm. Those things should not kind of coexist, but they do beautifully. And there's this element of a just really earned authentic redemption story that that you told beautifully well. I really, uh, it, I, I think, I think it's it's the best portrayal of faith in anything that I've read. And so, wow. the fact that you were able to do that when you approach the story with the Brown family, and the Brown family are some of the sweetest people on the planet. Like yeah. I, I, I adore Kelly and Larry and Janice. I love Kelly's kids, Nathan and Savannah. Uh, they're just, it's a special family. So when we went out there to research things, uh, for the movie, I went out to hot Springs, spent some time with, uh, the family, uh, uh, Jason Hall, who's writing the screenplay for it. He and I drove the neighborhoods. Uh, we went and saw the statue of Adam that exists like three blocks from where he used to bite drugs. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a, a statue of him holding a Bible. I just, there's something so raw and authentically represented with faith with teeth to it. What, mm. what, what did you do? What was your approach, especially on that condensed timeline? What was your approach to trying to understand and gather all the facts as to who Adam Brown was? I just, to talk to, the people who were most important in his life that knew him the best, his, his, the, you know, the brotherhood of the Navy SEALs, uh, his teammates, um, who were, who, who were alive at the time and as well, people who had worked with him and also just diving deep into all of the, the literature or anything like he, he wrote notes to Kelly, um, and letters and he had journaled when he was deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq. So I just, I just kind of just took everything that I could get that possibly. And I just did a deep dive into reading it and, um, traveling wherever I needed to go to interview any of his SEALs brothers that would talk to me. And at the time, because of the whole nine 11 thing and that SEAL team six was, you know, announced by um, Obama at the time, which was like, they were like, what are they saying? Why is he saying SEAL Team 6? This, we don't even say that. Um, and so there was all this, you know, they basically were all told nobody in that community speak to anybody in the media. Um, wow. But they did, they did, they spoke to me because of Kelly and they wanted to make sure that, and I, you know, I can't remember exactly who, which guy said this, a couple of them said the gist of it, but they said, hey, if you're going to do this, we want to make sure you do it right. Yeah, and don't so screw it up. They yeah. were, don't screw it up. They were, And as far as back to the faith, I told Larry and Kelly and all of them, I said, you know, this is, you know, he, this is very much a story of faith. And that is not my lane. Um, and he said, that's why you're perfect. And I was like, what do yeah. you mean? He said, it's not going to come across as propaganda. You are telling a story. 
and people can take it. And he said, we would hope that this will lead you into a greater understanding and, you know, your own journey of faith. But the most important thing is that you can tell the story in a way that hope, you know, it's not going to turn people off. It's not like Rick Stewart would always say he wasn't a, a pew jumping, Bible thumping Christian. He was someone who led by example. And in my in my world and in nonfiction, I'm going to, you know, you, no one knows by reading my books what my politics are, what my religion is, anything. They know what the characters are. And that's what I've always yeah. tried to, um, to, to stand by that. And uh, I just really made it a point to look for in that condensed timeline i, I kind of came to this understanding that there's so many moments of, of of adam being funny and hilarious and there's so many moments of him being crazy and um or being like a klutz you know or whatever yeah um there's so many of knocking me up so i just basically realized hey i just need to pick out the most important of all these and uh, make that choice and focus in on those so i was pretty um methodical about the whole thing and I worked, I mean, granted, it was nine months, but I worked in, my wife will attest to it, we had baby, uh, you know, a little baby at the time, and um, I worked 16-hour days, uh, six days a week for nine months. Um, wow. I was on low sleep and uh, everything. And it's kind of funny, but I knew when I was on the right track, one time Lorian walked up, um, my wife Lorian, who, by the way, she's an editor, and she makes me look good on paper <laughs> and otherwise, I, I love will it. say. My agent or my, my editors at the publishers, when they get my stuff, they're usually like, wow, this is pretty clean for an author. I'm like, well, it's been through a little bit already. Yeah. Um, so anyways, she came in one time and I was actually writing the part where some of Adam's brothers jump off of a bridge um, yeah. to honor him. It's my I was favorite trying part. to figure out what I was, how I was going to say this. And I remember just saying, you know, and I was listening, reading the um, various interviews I had of the guys who told me that scene and I have a picture of it sitting there on my desk and I'm writing it. And I wrote finally the one part I said, um, and they, and I just, I just said, I'm just gonna write what it is. They, they were up there, you know, thumping chest, whatever. And then they jumped. And then I just, what am I going to end? And then they jumped. I'm all, I can't just say they jumped. Uh, and, like, and they jumped for Adam. Wow. And I sat there and I just started crying Man, and this is a, a, the funny thing. Um, and I'm like, that's it. That's it. I have chills right now. I'm remembering it. I'm all, and that's they incredible. Jumped. And it was like for Adam. And I started crying and my wife walks in with dinner because I haven't seen her in seven hours and I hadn't eaten and she brought home, uh, brought up some dinner and she opens the door and she looks at me crying and she says, again, <laughs> <laughs> because there have been so many moments in that writing process where I would find a thing. And that was kind of my gauge. Like if it, if it affects my emotions while you're writing, that's another thing. If it can conjure your own emotions, um, it's going to hopefully conjure a reader's emotions as well. And that's when, you know, those are the sentences that you're going to fight for when it comes Man. down to what's going to, you know, be edited out or not. That's that, that, that gave me chills. I had, mm. I hadn't heard that from you yet. And like that, uh, uh, uh absolutely was, the the most profound simple solution uh but hard fought um you know in the process you know i i think you know i i do think that sometimes the most powerful voice that communicates you know what people authentically pr believe is somebody that is a benevolent skeptic or a cynic that can fight through trying to understand what makes this person tick and when they can find something that elicits emotion in themselves then it does mm -hmm. translate to an audience because it's 
fresh. It's not regurgitated or rehearsed. It's something new. And mm -hmm. uh, so to find those kind of honest moments were absolutely beautiful. For you, with, with, the, with the community, with the SEAL community in particular, and I, mm -hmm. I'm learning this on the fly right now, it's a very tight-knit community, but they're also very skeptical of outsiders. What, mm -hmm. what made them trust you in a, such a quick, abbreviated period of time as you tried to undercover the rest of the story? <laughs> you know, that's kind of a funny story with that, but I mean, they vetted me for sure. And, uh, I think when the, the first guys, uh, decided to let me speak with them were, uh, Chris Campbell and, um, rap. Um, and they were, um, they were going on a training mission in, uh, in Alaska, like in like three days. And Rick Stewart, again, Rick Stewart was my guide. He'd already gotten to know a lot of these guys. And he was just like, he said, hey, they're in Alaska, in this little town in Alaska, and they're going to be there in three days. And two of these guys, have, are, I said, they'll, they'd, they'd speak with you, maybe three that will be there, and they'll figure it out when they get there, when we get there, and if you can go. And can you? And I just said, yeah, let's, we're going. Um, let, let's do it. And so, you know, again, from a plane to a big plane to a little tiny plane to this little town in Alaska to this little, like, encampment, we I met these guys. and." Um, they just, you know, got to know me and we actually went to a local bar and imagine this is after 9-11. These guys are clearly military and the locals are coming up like with trays of sh shots of whiskey and stuff. And so honestly, uh, they it was like trial by whiskey. I, I drank <laughs> shots with them that <laughs> night and you cannot out drink a Navy SEAL. I mean, there are Canadians and there are Navy SEALs. I've hung out with both of them and they both can put down their alcohol and hold a, a straight face and got back to this, you know, late at night, got back to the encampment where we were. It's not an encampment. It was just like not a hotel, like a place that had little like cabins. And um, that was when Rat said, um, okay, I think I can talk to you about Adam now because he was complete. He needed that whiskey as well. And so I did my first interview for the book completely inebriated <laughs> and it's, it's uh, uh, and it was, um, and, and, and recorded it and it was amazing. And he opened up and he just said it was a really hard thing. And, and there's things in the book that are not in the book. I mean, there yeah. are things I interviewed, there's stuff in there that in these interviews, yeah, privileged information. That, yeah. And, um, and he just said, I know by looking at you that nothing's going to go in here. That's not supposed to be in here. So I'm just going to tell you the story because I'm going to have a really hard time self editing right now, but I want you to know who Adam was and, um, and everything from survivor's guilt to, um, moments of the final mission to just getting to know Adam along the way where we came out. And, uh, that was that type of a situation was what did. Then I from there, like a week later, some of these guys were in Virginia Beach, and they said, "Let's meet. We're gonna all like, have dinner at Adam's favorite restaurant." And we had dinner, and and then we scheduled um, meetings. They all basically um, got around me, and there was like eight of these guys, and they basically said, "You're gonna do Adam right, right?" And um, and this is you know for the family and for us. And when the, when eight of these SEAL team six, you know, elite yeah. tip of the spear, um, warriors who I'm, you know, it's just, and I think they could just see it in me. I had, uh, my intention was to honor Adam to tell the story, but I always tell everybody that I, whenever I say it, tell a family member, I will even share parts with you, but I said what I will 
allow you to do is correct me. If something's yeah. true and it's okay, I you know I will if it's not true or not accurate, I will consider changing something if I share something with you in the future. But my focus and my my goal is accuracy as best I can. You know, it's it, there's always different objectives. Yeah. Right, right. You know, and and in cases where there was uh, differing views, I said I will use the you know I will have the vote. If there's three of you that said no, it happened this way, and six of you said it happened this way, I'm going to go with the six, um, yeah. and things like that. And so that was how I, I went about it step by step, and they just basically all you know were on board. It was open up, so I. I interviewed them all for hours each, and um, I interviewed, went to Hot Springs, and I interviewed the family. Um, at the time, uh, Nathan and Savannah were quite young, and yeah. they and Kelly just said, you know, this is, you don't need for what you're doing to, to, to interview them up right. about, the, I just and it choked up because it was just so, it was surreal um, being there, and and interviewing uh, he'd only passed away like a year before man you know it wasn't that long before and um but they were so open to wanting to tell adam's story and and um yeah it was quite an experience and then i just went home with all this information and um started transcribing and started writing There's a lot of great SEAL stories, I mean, that have been told. What I think makes Adam different was this is a guy that said his 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 final wish to his wife was, don't tell my story unless you're willing to tell my flaws. It has to have my flaws in it. You have to tell yeah. a full picture of who I am. And so for yeah. this guy to allow, to go into it and say, I don't want to be memorialized as this perfect superhero. I want to be a human being that's flawed and broken, but has experienced a profound redemption that I believe is enrooted in what, what I believe in my faith. And uh, there's something in that flawed hero that I think communicates to each person of saying, if that can happen for a guy like that, maybe it can happen for me. There's something that you know has tremendous hope to it. But you just let the guard down and said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you see the human being, the person that 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 bleeds that is emotional that is a family person and yeah. uh and i think it's the best portrait of that and it became a huge you know new york times bestselling hit as far as with you know especially with the faith community and also with military uh and has left uh, an indelible legacy that led to our relationship and that's why like you know we're developing the movie of it right now and uh, working on the script, I just got delivered a new draft yesterday that I haven't even opened in my inbox because I'm terrified to start reading oh. it because I just wanted to get it. <laughs> I want to get it so right, uh, but it's uh, uh, you know it's something that you know I'm passionate about that I've told Kelly multiple times that Adam's story will be the most important movie I ever do. Period, mm. and it's worth working hard to get it right because the book got it right. Uh, and we want to match that same tone and get it right with the movie. So uh, it's just been a privilege to be on the journey with you with that. Yeah, likewise. And knowing, I mean, I know that when we first met, and I think you told the story of you on the airline, and I'm like, you know, it's very different than trying to uh, talk to a director or producer who has read the Amazon reviews and maybe <laughs> not even read the book and saying, oh, I, you know, versus you 
telling me how you were a blubbering snot nosed um, yep. man on, a, on an airline where the yep. your passengers next to you. And, and there, there's been a lot of those stories. People have uh, certain parts of the book. They people say they've written in the book at the wrong point and in the wrong place. And they're like, they've just had to excuse themselves and go and, and cry. Yeah. Um, but, 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 you know, also just for your listeners, it's a super uplifting story too. It sounds like it's yeah. his downer, but he's, no, it's, it's inspiring. It's, it's good it's tears. But it's, yeah. I mean, my idea with these stories is it's, it's, it's real life and you want the reader to fall in love with some, the, the, the character, you want them to realize that the flaws, you want yep. to be on that journey with them. But when, if, if in this case, Adam pass away, which you know from sentence one, that's going to happen. Um, you want them to be crushed. And um, yep. I was, and I, you know, that's, that is really it. And it, it's those emotions of what he did. And I mean, really the beauty in it is that because he was willing to have a, a book, his story told and have this book out there, he's touched so many lives. And I really think there's almost something if you look at that whole um, knowing that he had, I think he, there's something that he knew if, something bad were to happen to him and he could share this story that he could help people and at the expense of his own reputation and or his, his own life you know he was willing to put that out there to say hey i was this you know drug addict living in the gutter stealing from yeah. my own family um yet i could dig i could claw my way out of that hole and turn my life around and become who i became and that was the most fearless thing at all that he did i think in his life was just encouraging his story be told I love that. And that brings us to like, you know, I think each story kind of brings you to the next one that you tell. And, uh, and you know, fearless is one that just in your body of work, uh, you know, you know, is always going to be a special one, but you're able to come back to your roots with the new book. And uh, I, I got a privilege of getting a, a copy of the new one early. It's called the darkest white. And uh, it's uh it's a story about a legendary snowboarder, uh, Craig Kelly, that that he was, you know, legendary for what he did to to kind of enhance and start the sport, and then ultimately with this kind of backcountry free riding kind of uh, movement of just going out and snowboarding for the love of snowboarding, he's kind of the ultimate kind of figurehead of people that are the purest in the sport, and then ultimately leading to this you know tragic way that he died with the avalanche and 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 all the things that happened. But it brought you back to your snowboarding roots. So talk to me a little bit about the new story, where that came from. You spent five years working on it. What has this journey been like for you? Um, I'll just tell you where it started. And it's another interesting moment. But I was uh, when he passed away, uh, when he was killed in this avalanche, uh, Sean White, who we all have heard of now at the time, yeah. he was not yet an Olympian. But he was um, competing in the X Games. Um, again, these journeys kind of interweave with us. <laughs> yeah, we had him in skateboarding he, all the time. Yeah, yeah, and he um, was in um, Aspen, and he won the fir first athlete in snowboarding and X Games history to win back-to-back -back gold medals in the slope style event and the yep. half pipe. Right and sure. this was a week and a half after Craig had passed away, been killed, and he had. Some kid in um, in Aspen had made stickers that said Craig Kelly is my co-pilot, and you're not supposed <laughs> to put anything on those bibs. Like those bibs are yeah. in sponsors, whatever. And Sean right. White said, "I'm putting it on my bib." Boom, and he had it, and he wore it on his final run for the half pipe that he won the gold medal. Wow! With. And so this sticker became. I had a few of them. I had them ones that as a um, I use them on bookmarks and whatever. But I finally just uh, in 2018. 
I found one in a, in a box of my old, you know, mementos and whatnot. And I put it on my board and I went snowboarding with my son and with some buddies in, in Utah. And there's a guy on, in the lift line next to me. And he looks down at my board with this Craig Kelly and he says, who's Craig Kelly? And to me, it was just like, I couldn't believe there was another snowboarder on the planet that hadn't heard of Craig Kelly. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm 50. I, uh, I had, uh, took me three Advil and a hot shower before I could even put my boots on this morning. Cause I was so sore from the day before. And so I'm like, this is a different world. And I said, but what was the realization was, wow, there's people, Craig, Craig is being forgotten. And he was literally imagine I to use the example earlier of Michael Jordan. He was the Michael Jordan of snowboarding yeah. for, for my generation and, and inspired so many people. And here was some cool kid in his twenties um, that had just been born, you know, when he passed away and he had no idea who he was, man. Um, but there was hope because his buddy next to him whacked him on the shoulders of Craig Kelly, he's a legend. And I was like, and it was like this, both this immediate slap in the face. And then like, uh, it's okay, man, from these two kids that I have no idea who they were. Um, and I went home after that trip and I went to my storage unit. And when Craig had passed away, I wrote his a couple tribute stories for the magazine. So we had traveled together. Right. He became a friend over time. He was my hero. I mean, he's a guy that I realized at one point, wait a minute, I'm not going to be Craig Kelly. So maybe I can be a writer instead and still is. So that was the beginning of the whole journey. And I went into my storage unit and I, I went into this box that had Craig, just first name Craig on it. And I had saved all the magazines with him in it, the stories oh. I'd written, the coroner's report. Um, of the avalanche, all these things. And there's always these very serious questions that I always wondered about this avalanche. And he was killed huh. with six other individuals. So seven right. people killed. And um, that was uh, what I always had been haunted by that. And I thought, you know what? I'm. It's time. It's been 15 years at that point, And Craig needs to be introduced to a whole new generation. So I just knuckled down and went into the whole process and uh, started researching and you know you saw the results it's a it's a special story it's a tough story because it's it really is a it's a biography it's a history of the sport and it's this disaster narrative about um you know the snow science behind avalanches and craig and i actually the first time i ever had an avalanche course i did a seven-day avalanche course in um canada uh in uh 1995 craig kelly craig was there and he kind of shadowed the course and so there was all this history uh, between it. And I just started, I realized Craig had been this guy who was a chemical engineer in high school. Uh, I'm sorry, in, um, in college, really yep. intelligent, cerebral guy. And he was only two quarters shy of graduating and having a very awesome career. And he put it all aside to give it a shot at this sport that didn't even exist yet. And um, he was so, uh, again, cerebral. And he was also very empathetic. As he studied avalanches, he was studying to become a mountain guide at the time. Again, five years, I um, interviewed more than 100 people, more than 300 hours of interviews. I went to the mountains where Craig was killed, um, interviewed the, um, the guides who were there. And one was, you know, very much vilified for the deaths. And I just wanted to figure out what happened. And that's at the end of the day, it's kind of like with Adam. It's an inspiring story. It's a tragic story. but um, the subtitle really tells it all. It's like a mountain legend and the avalanche that took him is, yeah. is, is what it's all about. But main thing is I want to introduce him to a whole new generation and it's, yeah, 
coming out February 27th is the release date. And I, uh, I love that you brought it up and I love that you read it. I love that you read it. You're awesome. It's, oh, well, it's, it's so good. I mean, cause the thing that was interesting, I mean, t- to know him from like the sport is one thing, but again, your ability to kind of flesh out the human being, like he just had this magnetic personality that, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. resulted in his funeral, like everybody saying, well, Craig was my best friend. And that idea yeah. that kind of came out on the page made him a human being rather than just a, a figurehead of a sport. And uh, so I thought that was beautiful how you did that. I think people are in for a real treat with the book. It's definitely on brand with you of the kind of stories that you tell so well, but it it also is kind of full circle to get you back to your snowboarding roots. Was that kind of cool yeah. to go back to the beginning? It was very cool, and it was also very difficult because again, this this was a personal hero of mine. Yeah, and and I so and I live in this community. So I mean, I I will snowboard till you know as long as my body <laughs> allows me to snowboard, <laughs> I will snowboard. It is, you know, I mean, there's times when honestly carving on a snowboard is, is less painful than walking. If I have an injury, you know, it's like, it is a beautiful thing. It is a, you know, it is an awesome, awesome sport and it's a way to get into the mountains and into nature. And that's what Craig ultimately realized that that was what it was all about. And for me, again, it was really fun to reconnect with a lot of people that I hadn't in a long, long time to dig into my old magazines and the historical archives of everything that I saved. And I knew, as I'm, I'm, you know, as it comes, when it comes to research, I'm definitely a research hoarder. <laughs> so yeah. I have these I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to use this someday. I'm gonna someday. Use it in my area. Uh, and this time I did. I pulled it all out and I used it. And but again, it was also difficult because uh, yeah. so many people love Craig, and there are so many great stories. And I, there's only so much room to just tell yeah. all these stories. So this is uh, a, it's a snapshot of Craig's life, but it'll open them up to. You know, there's so many movies out there. He was in everything from Greg Stump movies to Warren yeah. Miller movies to whatever. So people can understand who he was and if they want to do their further research. I, I tried to cover a lot of stories that weren't covered out there um, so they would understand what made him tick. Like from, a, from childhood being a latchkey kid of divorced parents all the way to four-time world champion to this guy who walks away from it all to return to his roots in the backcountry. And um, and then to become like kind of the master of the mountains as a mountain guide, it's you know it was a, a journey, and I just uh, I I hope is it's well received. Already, it's been really well received in the initial reviews. So I'm hopeful that there won't be anybody out there in a lift line ever again that says who's Craig Kelly. You get a chance to kind of you know submit somebody's place in history. It's it's just such an honor to be able to make sure people don't forget. I think that's one of the the um, definitely uh, kind of calling cards of a really great storyteller, especially ones that tells true stories like you do. And you're our master storyteller. What, like for you, what are the indelible marks of a, of a great storyteller? Integrity to, to the truth. I mean, I personally, I'll, I'll talk to colleges sometimes. And, and when you're writing these types of stories, especially things that have happened in the past, you're inevitably going to come to places where you might not have the beautiful transition from this moment to the next. You might not know a certain detail. And I think that there are plenty. In fact, I know for a fact um, from experience, there are people and nonfiction authors and writers who will have a hole in their story and they'll, they'll fill it with something just to keep the story in that flow. And I will tell kids all the time, 
Um, I say better to have a hole in your story than fill it with bullshit. Wow. And that is really, well I, think, and, and I think that that is part of the integrity. And I know for a fact there's a, there's a Pulitzer prize winning author. I interviewed um, two mil. I'm going to try and be careful. So I'm not outing him, but um, who won the Pulitzer prize. And I interviewed two people who are characters in his book and he did a ton of research, but he recreated a conversation between these two guys. And I talked to them both and they said, uh, what he said sounds plausible, but it never happened. It's great for the story, but I never said this and he never said this and it just didn't happen. And for that reason, they lost all respect for that entire book. And, um, and it's out there and it's, and part of it was BS. And that was really something for me that I thought was um, important. And the other thing is that you, uh, again, uh, you know, you don't, don't candy coat anything. Stuff, stuff is tough to read. And I think that, you know, when you read this avalanche story, it's a cautionary story. And I wanted to show how raw it is to be in an avalanche where you're digging up people trying to save their lives and it is raw and it is brutal and I think yeah. it's important because that's how we learn. So I think just that integrity of trying to maintain, you know, some people will say, don't let the truth get in the way of telling a good story. I don't buy it. I would rather be able to stand behind every sentence in a book and um, yeah, integrity. And of course you have to hook the reader first sentences and you have to give them a reason to want to get to the end. Uh, that's another really important thing, especially with a short attention span today. Uh, you got to give a reader a reason to keep reading. I love, you know, we have little moments of movie history that we love to kind of explore. And I understand, and maybe it's not correct, that you were an extra in a film once. Is that correct? <laughs> Probably my most famous moment ever. That is, <laughs> I get more emails and texts, but because um, it's such a classic, it has such lasting power. I was an extra in Christmas Vacation with Chevy That's Chase and Cousin Eddie. Yeah. Um, and it's in the scene. I was living in Breckenridge, Colorado when I was a snowboard bum in 1989. Uh -huh. Um, and they did a call out, they were filming Christmas vacation and all like people signed up and they did the whole sledding scene when they're in the, yep. on the mountain and a bunch of my friends up there had all got called in and they were pretty much done shooting. I'm like, I'm not going to get called. And they decided to shoot the scene when he goes shopping with cousin Eddie yeah. Um, for dogs, any and in um, and it ended up it's that was filmed at a Walmart in Frisco or yeah. Dylan Frisco or Dylan, um, not far from Breckenridge, and it was they were done shooting it, and then they had a last minute thing, and they called me in, and I went into wardrobe, and at that point I had like the the peroxide bleached semi <laughs> flat topping with a full mullet in back, oh, man. <laughs> and it's it's classic, and it gets to the point in the film when they're walking down the aisle chatting back and forth. And they stop at this one moment, and it's a moment when I think um, if you're watching closely, uh -huh. uh, Chevy Chase puts down a pack of of um, light bulbs on top of a huge bag of dog food because he's buying it for snot, of course. Uh -huh. And then he grabs another bag of dog food and puts it on top of the light bulb, and that was like my cue when he slammed that down. I walk right behind him, ah, and I'm just awesome. across. And you can see, you can tell, see the perfect side profile of the mullet, spiky hair and the mullet down to about here with a green jacket and like fur, the fur around the back. Cause we're supposed to be in Chicago. I love it. 
I love it. And um, yeah, so I walked behind. And then if you watch closely, a second later, I went past the background action and I walked right in front of them. And it was so hard not to do this. You know, when you're walking by, yeah. it's like a little <laughs> camera. <laughs> <laughs> but they were hilarious. And Cousin Eddie, I will say, there's another thing, this little extra. But he said, he even told all the ex, all the people that were there. Before that scene, he wears these skin tight, like polyester pants. And he takes a rawhide dog bone about this big. And it's if you look closely, he shoved it down his leg. And it's in all those scenes. If you look closely, there is a rawhide dog bone. <laughs> Cousin Eddie's pants. That's so like, funny. This is a little something extra for you guys to tell your friends someday. And That's I awesome. So funny. It was so funny. And they were so nice. And Chevy Chase, I've heard he can be, you know, whatever. You always hear things about famous people at different moments. I've heard he's, you know, maybe more standoff here. When we had dinner at like, uh, we started at like nine o'clock at night when they closed and we worked until four in the morning yeah. so when the place, when Walmart was closed yeah. and um, he sat down, right? Like two people over at, at our table with all the extras Chevy Chase did and huh. chatted with, chatted us up and, and he was hilarious and funny and, and what a classic film. I mean, and I get, I get shots of me um, texted of people freeze the screen from it. Just watch you tonight. Just watch you tonight. That's and, incredible. Yeah, like, I, I, had to, I, had, I had to confirm it because I'm going to go back and we're going to watch it at my house tonight and I will send you a freeze frame of that because that, uh, th that's, that's, that's incredible. I had heard that rumor and the fact that back to fearless with Adam Brown, that, that was that, their favorite, that, that their favorite fil film. They would like, Adam was renowned for showing up at the door dressed as, you know, the character and rehearsing it line for line. And it was a yeah. shtick he did all along. So again, back to the 24, kind of destiny that's a that's another little yeah. nugget i that I, well, I absolutely love well i gotta tell you after um i got to learn that as well i ended up giving the brown family you know they have the punch bowl with the little yep. moose um glasses yep. i gave them a collection of that for christmas a few a couple like i think a year after the book came out and so it. they put it out if it's if the if the moose handles have survived because they're pretty delicate <laughs> Man, I, well, yeah. Eric, you know, uh, the, the, the people that I have on this show, I have on because they're, they're storytellers that I respect. Um, and, uh, and so we respect you as a storyteller. You're a master storyteller. Uh, you. you know, I, I, I find a common bond with you of the integrity of telling true stories and trying to understand and correctly represent real life people. And I think there's a, there's a difference in the way that we do it than you got, than you guys do it in books. But there's also a common desire and integrity that has to happen. And, um, and so, you know, you, you do that well every time. This new book, The Darkest White, comes out February 27th, is absolutely on brand. People will, that love Fearless will absolutely adore this one as well. Uh, but uh, we respect you, man. And I'm hoping that Fearless is an amazing experience for us because we'd love to, to adapt more Eric Blinn books because you're good at what you do, brother. Uh, well, you as well. And I... You know, again, my, my daughter is the litmus test and she, <laughs> we, when we went to the premiere for Jesus revolution and it was, she was just so, it was just such an amazing story that crossed all borders. Again, it, it was, uh, that documentary almost style yeah. where you're getting, you feel like you're in this moment of history. It was historical. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, it was and funny and the acting was so good and Thanks, man. just, everything and uh i can only imagine uh is another that when i when i knew you were interested i watched that 
and with uh, Dennis Quaid and and um, Dennis Quaid is in well, I can only imagine yeah right? yeah yeah father, it plays right? the father yeah, yeah. plays Arthur yeah I mean that whole that was such a powerful powerful um, just father son story yeah. and uh, I was just I was uh, I was taken in I'm like wow these guys you know they're the ones they're going to tell the story and they're going to tell it they're going to tell it right and well, um, so I, it's an honor to work with you as well to be on this to be called a master I mean I'm still I mean, I'm, I, I'm 55 and I, but I still feel like I'm a, I'm just a, a rookie when it comes to telling these stories. I really do. I mean, I just, each time is its own challenge. And I, and I think that's, what's kind of cool. It keeps you young in a way too, because you're always kind of on edge. Like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to pull this off? And uh, you dive into it and you get a little bit more uh, confidence each time, but each book is its own journey. And um, that's what I think is what keeps it fascinating to me is just that each separate journey is um, is just so important, I think, to keep things fresh. Thanks, buddy. Well, a tons of respect. We're uh, working hard on the script and hopefully you and I will be on a movie set soon. But until then, uh, thanks for being oh, on the Storytellers. It's an honor to be in this group of people that you're um, putting together. What a great idea. Interviewing storytellers about storytelling. Awesome. <laughs> Man, what a joy to have Eric on the show. That was an amazing interview to just kind of talk about his process. I find it fascinating to share ideas with storytellers that do things in a little bit of a different venue. So for him as an author and as a journalist, uh, telling true stories and figuring out the way his process, it's just so cool to compare that with what we do in film. And so uh, love Eric, love. I would love to see the, the flat top bleach blonde mullet that he used to have back in the day. I'm gonna go freeze uh, Christmas vacation tonight to find the scene. But uh, but just love having it on the show. I think the thing about Eric's story that speaks to me as a storyteller is the integrity it takes to tell true stories. Um, you know, I think with doing a film, it's a little bit different because as a film, you're doing a portrait, not a photograph. But there is an integrity to try to clearly understand uh, the way the person thinks that you're telling their story. And to understand that for a large portion of society, how you create this piece of art is gonna be how most people believe that that person really is. And you have to make sure you get it accurate. And a lot of it's subjective, especially in a case like Eric telling uh, several posthumous stories. Um, with that, you have to really triangulate by studying as much resources and material as you can on the person, but then also really talking to multiple people that knew them well and trying to kind of get a 3D image of who they were. And it's so subjective because, you know, one person might have one recollection of somebody and somebody else has a different one. But when you kind of begin to compare those points of view, it creates this 3D image for you to tell the story. And I think there's an integrity for how Eric has told his stories that is really, really accurate because I've talked to a lot of the real life people that he's written his books about, uh, their families and different things like that. And every one of them say, this is exactly who the person I love was. Um, and so in the case of Fearless, that's what attracted me to the story. And he did that uh, with, from the standpoint of telling, Eric, uh, telling uh, Adam's faith. Uh, he did it with such integrity, even though it's not what you know Eric personally believes he made sure that he put that version of who Adam was and what he believed in his faith in Jesus Christ in a very authentic way. And I think there, there's an integrity to a storyteller, not inserting yourself in the narrative, 
when it's a true story, but allowing your character to come to their point of view in a way, real, a way that's honest. And so uh, I love that about his stories. I love how he tells those stories. Um, and that's why I want to do the movie Fearless. It's one that is communicated to me on a soul level that I'm like, if I, if there's one more movie I do before I'm done with this job, it has to be this one. So excited about that. Love to have him on the show. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you on the next episode. The Storytellers is a Kingdom Story Company production. It is produced by Nick Carey with production assistance from Ben and Justin Bailey. Our executive producers are Kevin Downs and Brandon Gregory. Social media for the show is run by the team at Troops and Allies, and our music is Twisted Rooster by Tommy Prophet. Special thanks to Jaron Weatherly, Evan Johnston, and our entire team at Kingdom Story Company. We have so many exciting guests coming up this season. To ensure you don't miss any of them, subscribe to The Storytellers for free on YouTube at Kingdom Story Company or wherever you listen to podcasts. For exclusive first looks at our upcoming films, behind the scenes content, and invitations to advanced screenings, join the conversation as a Kingdom Insider at KingdomStoryCompany.com and follow us at Kingdom Story Company across all platforms. As always, thanks for joining Andrew Irwin and his friends on The Storytellers.